Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode two, and my name is Christopher Bailey, your host. This week, I talked to John Fincher, one of the authors here at Real Python. We discuss a couple articles he's written recently for the site on Pygame and Arcade, and how writing games can help you develop your Python skills. So let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. Interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, John. Welcome to the podcast. Hey. How you doing? Good. So why don't you give us a little bit of your programming background? Sure. I actually learned to code back in high school. I was lucky enough, this is back in the, uh, dating myself here, back in the early 1980s, and there was a programming class. Uh, I remember having some of the high school kids come to the junior high to show off these new Apple II computers that they had. Yeah. And I was, en- <laughs> I was enamored with, with all the graphics and all the cool stuff that they could do on them. And so I thought, hey, I got to learn how to how to do this stuff. And so got into a programming class in high school, was playing video games, you know, old, old style, you know, pixelated video games, Snakebite and Bomberman and, you know. Load Runner. Yeah, Load Runner. Oh, I love Load Runner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we we played all these games. I'm like, I got to learn how to write these games. Got further and further into it. And uh, as I went along, I discovered that, hey, you know what? Operating systems and databases are really, really cool because I also, I like math. I was, you know, really big into math. And kind of joining the two of them, uh, I remember my math teacher, she made some offhand comment about some graphing software that we were using, how they were graphing the equations and how it worked. And it was just a throwaway comment on her part. But I sat there and said, she said, like, how, you know, it's some difficult way that they're using to graph these things. And I sat there and looked at it and said, how hard can it be? And that was pretty much it from there. You're hooked, huh? Yeah, I, I definitely hooked. Went to college, got my degree in college, uh, worked at a couple little places before, you know, doing database programming and such before I got uh, hired on at Microsoft. And I did, I'd been doing database programming and they were just coming out. This was 1995. I got hired a couple weeks after Windows 95 launched. Wow. And Office 95 had come out and they were looking for support people to help support all their new offerings for Office. So I wound up being a support person for Access 95. Because I'd been doing, you know, DBase and access programming and such in my previous life. That turned into doing support for the operating system, which turned into doing support for this thing called uh, Windows Embedded, which was a scaled down embedded version of Windows. And that led me to, you know, a 20 some odd year career at Microsoft. Wow. Can I pause you there for a second? Sure. So what would it be embedded into? Windows Embedded would go into things like cash registers. It would go into things like uh, slot machines. Video slot machines used them a lot. Oh, okay. They had that CE version for a little while, Windows CE. That was like in a Dreamcast. Right, right. Yeah, so Windows CE was its own little operating system that turned into Windows Mobile that you know eventually became Windows Phone at some point. Yeah, um, okay. Windows, Windows Embedded started big. It started with Windows NT and tried to make it as small as it could. And then Windows XP Embedded. You know, and so that went into dedicated devices that could handle something as big as NT or as big as XP, Okay, but in a, in a dedicated way. And so from there, I was doing servicing work for it. And that led me into what was then called Windows SE. And I started doing uh, servicing for the operating system. 
basically the reason why if you have a Windows machine that you have to reboot it once a month. Yeah. Um, because of security updates, that was us. Okay. <laughs> we're the reason. We were doing security updates and other updates for it. And I don't know, about four or five years ago, I learned about this group called Teals, which would take computer professionals from industry and put them into schools to help teach kids computer science, teach them programming and such. And so the schools wanted to have a computer science program, but they didn't have teachers who knew computer science. Okay. So we came in, we got a couple weeks of here's how you teach, and then got put into classrooms to help teach kids. And I found I loved doing that. I absolutely loved it. So after doing that, volunteering for a couple of years and just growing disillusioned with what I was doing um, at Microsoft, I left and started teaching. I'd been teaching in the high schools for a while. Uh, that's actually where I learned Python. That's We were teaching Python. I didn't know it. So I figured I better learn Python if I'm going to teach this stuff. Yeah. So cool. And then for the past year, I've been uh, semi-retired. We moved from the Seattle area. Uh, moved to Illinois. There's not a lot of teaching opportunities around here. So I've been, I've been sitting at home writing a lot, just trying to keep my, keep my creative juices flowing. Sure. No, I can understand that. And that's how you kind of got wired into real Python, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I had started, um, I was still doing volunteer teaching when uh, uh, Dan put out a call. He said he wanted writers and I thought, Hey, I could write this stuff. Why not? I started, that was about two years ago. I've written, I don't know, seven or eight articles so far. And I love doing it. I love doing the writing. I love doing the research that goes into it, all the learning, the new stuff, uh, because, you know, I'm writing about some stuff that I, I know a little bit about, but not a lot. So I need to get up to speed fairly quickly. And I really enjoy doing that. Cool. It sounds like you've been into games your whole career early on. And then now you're kind of getting into it with, again, with all your writing. Yeah. Um, I started, like you know, like I said, I wanted to learn how to write games, found out that it's, you know, they're, they're really tough. They're, they're not easy things to learn to do. I've started uh, with games way back in the way back, but didn't do much with it. Okay. A couple years ago, when I started teaching, one of the things that we did with the kids when we were teaching them how to, how to write code, because they don't want to learn machine learning. They don't, that's not interesting to them. What's interesting to them is let's make these really cool, goofy little games. Yeah. See stuff moving around on the screen. Yeah. Stuff they can control, share with their friends. Yeah, exactly. You know, so uh, we started working with them with Scratch and then moved to Python. That's when, okay, so how do you do all this stuff in, in Python? How do, you, how do you make these things move? How do you, you know, uh, Scratch and Snap kind of block languages have got a lot of that stuff built in. Python doesn't. So we had to figure out how do you make sprites? How do you make them move? How do you move them around on the screen? How do you keep score? How do you handle collisions? Things like that. So it, it kind of brought it all back to me. And I, I decided, hey, I, I really like doing this. Let me see. I've got a couple of game ideas in mind. Let me see what I can do with those. So do you think that game programming is a good way for someone to learn programming in general? Yeah, I do. A, a lot of the basic ideas of of computer science come into it in computer programming. You know, you need to have loops, you know, in order to keep the game going. You need to have conditionals so you can tell you know, when, you know, when a game is over, when you've collected a coin or when you've hit a, a bad guy or when you've fallen off the edge of the edge of the world, you know, you need to know how to, how to do things, repeat them over and over again. So that leads you into, okay, maybe I write a function to do this. Right. I want to have different kinds of enemies. Maybe one of them flies, one of them walks, but other than that, they're both the same kind of thing. So, Okay, now we start talking about classes and objects. And so it can lead you into object-oriented coding. Yeah. 
So a lot of the basics are there and you wind up learning a lot of the stuff with, without even knowing that you're doing it. You just kind of fall into it because, oh, I wanted to make my sprite guy, I wanted to make him run. So I needed to have this little loop that would animate the sprite. All of a sudden you, now you know how a loop works. So. Yeah. So I, I was thinking that too, when I was getting into converting your article on Pygame and I decided that would be a good course to recreate, you know, as a, as a video lesson. And I really found it fascinating how much you practice all of these game techniques, the especially object-oriented stuff. As a person writing it, think to yourself, okay, well, I don't want to have to rewrite all of this code. I want, I want to be efficient. And like you said, like there can be two different types of enemies. They're both enemies and they might have similar you know, attributes like health or something like that. But then they might vary from there. And then that you go into like, okay, this one has flying characteristics and this one has ground-based characteristics or what have you. And, and yeah, it's just such a great way to really practice all of those techniques. You're always wanting to make it more efficient because you want the game to be efficient also, you know, which is, right. which is a big part of it. Right. And, and, and even in that game, you know, you, you've got uh, the enemies, the, the one that's in the, the Pi game article, you've got the enemies that are flying at you. And you've got clouds as well. And the clouds fly too. Right. Now it's not just you can make a class out of out of just enemies, but enemies and clouds fly. That's their commonality. So it gets you to think in in different terms, kind of outside the box that, yeah, the clouds are just background. They don't really interact with anything, but they really behave just like those flying missiles do. They, you know, they travel from left to right. Uh, when they're off screen, you need to get rid of them. So maybe there's a flying thing class and you just need to differentiate between what's a thing that I can hit the clouds and what's a thing that I can't hit the missiles. So it really gets you to kind of think outside the box, which is 90%, I, I think, of, of programming. It's not the language. It's the how do you think of the problem? How do you think through the problem? Right. And one of the things that you mentioned, you have this background in, in data. It's odd to think about it, but games also have data structures. Oh, yeah. I have a, a another article coming out. It's it's waiting on tech review at this point on writing platformer games. Okay. So the, there's the arcade article that just came out, and then it's a okay. Let's expand on that. How do you make a platformer? So what would be an example of platformer if somebody's not familiar? Uh, something like a Super Mario Brothers. Okay. Even Load Runner. Load Runner could be a platformer. It's it's uh, you have a character, you have a number of platforms on which they can run. Uh, there's usually enemies that are chasing you. You've got ways to get between platforms and ways to hopefully defeat or avoid enemies. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes they scroll. Sometimes they're you know they're side scrollers is another term for them. Trying to to write this. There, there's a number of different ways that you can that, that you can code up you know the data that makes up the the actual world in which you are in which you're interacting. You know you can either write it in Python code and just straight code. Okay, I want you know this tile here. I want this kind of thing to be a, a wall. I want this thing to be a floor. Okay. You know I want a, a floating platform or there are tools that you can use that can define the world for you. And then you save that off as data. It would create like a, a level would be a set of maps of repeating data. Exactly. You, you'd, have, you'd have the map um, saved off as data, and then you just read it all in. How do you create those maps? How do you read all that stuff in? A lot of it is uh, a lot of the good frameworks. Arcade actually has a very good setup for that, where you can use a, a tool called Tiled, okay. uh, which is a mapeditor.org, and you can define your world using Tiled, and then Arcade can read that data in and build the world for you, and then you can just start interacting. But there are other things like, okay, 
where are where are the enemies located? How do I put an enemy in place? How do I how do I make my platforms move? Okay, you know, so there there's different different aspects there. So maybe if you want to place your enemies, you might be able you might do that in code, or you might have another data file that says, okay, for this level, here's where all my enemies are located. And so now you've got to be able to read in data. You got to be able to write data out. If you want to save a game, you need to be able to write things out and read them back in again. Right. Kind of like the concept of state. Like Exactly. You know, if somebody were to want to jump back into the game and it's not like a, a simple arcade game where you want it to remember that where they were and continue on from there, you need to have a system in place for that. Exactly. If you want to have a, a save point in your game, you know, you get to the middle of it and you want to be able to say, okay, you've made progress to here. Now you can... You know, you can save it at this point if you want it to, to have a save point or, you know, something where, you know, you get past a certain point And if you if your character dies after that, instead of respawning at the very beginning, you respawn there in the middle. OK, you need to be able to save that state off somewhere. So how do you do that? So these are some of the problems that you wind up thinking through. And how do you save that in an efficient way that makes sense that you can then get back to fairly quickly? Some of this sounds kind of overwhelming. And one of the things that I, I liked in your article on Pygame was this idea of setting limits initially when you're creating this game, the sort of idea, maybe what doesn't my game do initially? Yeah, yeah. Can you expand on that? Yeah, um, this is great. Uh, Raymond Chen um, is, uh, he's a Microsoft employee. He's I don't know, software engineer, principal level, maybe. Um, he's He's been at Microsoft. He's forgotten more about the Microsoft <laughs> user interface programming than most people know. Sure. I've had the privilege of working with him on a, on a project before, and he has a, a blog called The Old New Thing. Way back, I don't know, it was 2004, he had written a blog article, and one of the things that he had said was, you don't know what you do until you know what you don't do. And this, it's kind of along the lines of, you know, if everything is priority one, nothing is priority one. You, you have to limit yourself as to what it is that your game's going to do. And maybe the first iteration of the game is, very simple. It's it's very basic. It's let me just see if I can get this this jet to move around the screen and not fly off the screen. And that could be the first step. And then you start to add in, okay, let's let's add in the missiles. How do I make them come along? Right. You'll notice the game doesn't have any kind of way to shoot. That could be an interesting addition. How do you make it shoot? You know, maybe there are different kinds of power-ups that that come along that would give you invulnerability or that would give you, you know, an extra life. Or, and these are all things that you can add later. There's another great saying that I like, uh, which is don't compare your chapter one to someone else's chapter 20. <laughs> sure. My first games, they're they're bad. They're, they're not that great. These games that, that I've been working on, I, I had the benefit of when I wrote the initial pie game article, it was actually a rewrite of a previous article. So there was a game there. All I had to do was was look at the game, make sure that that it still worked, make sure I understood it, and then add to it anything that I wanted to. And I used that same game for the arcade article. So now it was a matter of, okay, there's a set game that I know and I understand. How do you make it work in arcade? Okay. So the next one, the platformer was, okay, I understand arcade. How do I do something brand new? Because I'd never done a platformer before. I had no idea what to do. So I had to learn how to do a platformer. And that's where this this next article is coming from, is me learning how to write a platformer and hopefully write write a decent platformer. 
is it going to compete with Mario? No, but <laughs> it, it competes. It competes very well against the the previous shooter game that I did because it's it's much more complicated. It's much more complex, and I'm building on my skills. And that's that's what all these things are. They just keep building on your skills. Your first couple of games, they'll be okay, but they're not going to be. You know, they're not going to burn the barn down. The next games that you do, just keep adding something new. Keep doing something a little a little better. Keep pushing it a little more. And, you know, before you know it, now you're writing the next Gears of War. <laughs> sure. I think that it teaches you a lot about development in general and the idea of evolution of the waterfall to methodologies for development now. But games can be kind of a similar similar concept there. Yeah. Agile, I guess. Yeah, agile. I, I've done a lot with Scrum um, in the past, and you can apply uh, a lot of the Scrum techniques to to individual efforts as well, because that's what all these are from your individual efforts. I don't have anybody else working with me. You can apply a lot of those techniques uh, where you know you just incrementally add more and more features as you go along. You just set yourself a little goal. You know, like this week, I want to do X. Okay, that's what I'm doing. Like right now, I'm I'm working on. Uh, another game and I'm saying, okay, how do I add like title screens and game over screens and pause screen and make nice transitions between them? Because I've, I've done the screens before. Now, how do I do these and make some nice transitions between them, make them kind of flow and not just be very abrupt? Hey, the game's over with, you're done. You know, I want to make a nice little like at the end of Mario when when Mario loses all of his lives and he does that da 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 and he just kind of jumps up and falls off the screen. <laughs> how do you do that? Right. You know, how, you know, how does everybody else stop and you make that little thing happen? So, so that's kind of the next thing. So you keep polishing it as you keep going along and exactly, you know, giving those uh, little moments of excitement and kind of a break in the action. Yeah, I like that. When you were working at Microsoft. Were you a manager at some point? Uh, so my title was was project manager, or actually, I'm sorry, program manager. Okay. So basically, I didn't manage anybody. Um, I mentored a lot of folks. I mentored a lot of new folks who've come in. I'm I'm happy to see some of the folks that I mentored see them moving up the ladder at Microsoft, which is which is great. Nice. Basically, the the way I used to uh, explain program managing at Microsoft is you have developers who write all the code. You have testers, they test the code, and then you have the, the program managers who do everything else. <laughs> okay. Some, somebody described our job as making sure that the developers always had something, the developers and testers always had something to do. Sure. You didn't want you know, them sitting around getting bored and saying, what's, what's next? What's going on? So you know, I wrote specs. I, I dealt with customers. I wrote documentation. We bounced ideas off one another. I, I can code as well. And so I was able to talk with the system engineers, the, uh, the software engineers, rather, developers and testers you get to be a translator in some ways between all those teams and sounds like yeah exactly exactly you know they they could explain something to me they could show me in code and i i could sit there and look at them so you know i took part in code reviews and such so it was it it, it was a great experience it was a very rewarding experience i i really enjoyed doing it i never I, I people managed one person for like four or five months and i really didn't do very well at it so uh, i like working with people i i really don't like uh, managing people uh, all that much. Sure. No, I understand. I guess why I brought it up is I was having a thought, let's say, you know, somebody wants to build on their portfolio. Do you think adding games that someone's programmed, would that be something a manager would be interested in looking at? Do you think that shows off certain sets of skills? I think so, because games are very easy to understand. Okay. 
you know, everybody understands what, I think everybody understands what a game is. It's it's meant to be a challenge for somebody. It's meant to, you know, for somebody to have fun, be a bit of a distraction from from the, the everyday. If I'm looking at somebody's, uh, you know, their GitHub repository and I see uh, all these different things on, you know, machine learning and AIs and different things, I'm looking at it going, okay, this is meant to solve a specific problem. I, I need to understand what the problem space is. If I look and I see, oh, they've got a game up there, I can download that, I can run it, I can, you know, see the game, you know, right off the top and see exactly how it's supposed to work. Right. Because I understand that. And I think games are more universal. As I look around at at people who are doing games, I'm amazed at, at some of the folks who can actually, you know, whip out a game in, you know, a three-hour Twitch stream. Oh, wow. I've seen a couple of folks who've done that, who've decided, okay, they're just going to put this game together. And, you know, is it polished? No. Does it have all the bells and whistles that it needs? No. But the basic mechanics are there. Everything is in place. You can see where everything can get hooked up. They can go off and have artwork done and have a, a, a nice working game and do this within three hours because they understand, you know, the environment in which they're working. They understand the game and uh, they understand how to put it all together. And that's the kind of level... Of, of expertise that I think that everybody's looking for. I find it amazing. There's actually, was it Pi Week coming up? Yeah, I was just going to mention that, that it's March 29th. Explain what Pi Week is. Yeah. Pi Week, you've got a week to build a game in Python. They set up different constraints. The The game has got to be of, of a, you know, in a certain genre. It's got to have certain theme, whatever it is that they define. So you get a week to build a game. And this is great for, for, for beginners as well as experts, because you've got a week, you can put this, uh, you can put these things together and there's plenty of resources out there. If you're not an artist, you, you don't need to be an artist. You can go out and find the art. If, if you've got an idea for a game, this is a great time for you to put the game together, you know, give yourself a week and, and just code up a game. It is, I'll be honest with you. I've seen it. I haven't partaken in it. I'm looking forward to, to partaking in it this time. Oh, you are going to? Okay. Yeah. Yes. I wondered about, there's teams, right? So the idea is that if you wanted to join a, a small team or something like that, that, that might be a possibility too. Is, am I right about that? Um, I think so. Again, I'm going to have to take a look at it. Uh, I was planning on just doing it solo. Okay. Uh, I've got an idea for a game in my head. I'm already kind of testing out some things that, that would go along with it. it. It's a recreation of a of a game that I played years and years ago. Sure. I haven't, haven't seen anybody else come up with a, a version of it since then. So I'm kind of looking forward to, to seeing if I can actually pull it off or not. You know, within a week, that's a an ambitious goal. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. Talk about the idea of like a scrum or a agile development, getting a proof of concept and putting something on its legs. You're going to end up having to do it yeah. pretty quick and keep it small in, in some senses. So you were talking a little bit about watching a Twitch stream. Yeah. I've seen that Al Swigert occasionally will do that. Uh, the guy who wrote Automate the Boring Stuff. Yep. He also has a couple of books about gaming uh, invent with python i think yeah yeah he's got he's got some great books of his i've got um ebook versions of most of his stuff automate the boring stuff inventing computer games with python good stuff that he doesn't go into into the graphical elements all that much goes more into the how do you construct the game and the flow of the game which is great for for beginners sure love al's stuff he's kind of like the the mac daddy of the, the python world yeah, I'll definitely include a lot of those links. Um, who were you watching on Twitch? There's there's one guy I watched a lot. His name was, he went by Quill, 
Quill Dev. I watched a lot of his YouTube streams after the fact, and this is back before I was getting into Python and I was trying to learn Unity, and he did a lot of Unity gaming. Okay. Yeah, that's a popular platform. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I, I run 21 years at Microsoft, and now I don't have a Windows machine. I have a Linux machine, and Unity doesn't run on Linux. Oh. Um, but still, the, the the lessons are there. Um, there There is a, a game engine that runs on Linux, Mac, and Windows called uh, Godot or Godot. A lot of those lessons still still play into it. So you can do a lot of a lot of really cool stuff with with game engines. But if you're just starting out, it's like maintaining uh, you know an address book at home using SQL Server. It's <laughs> okay. It, it's kind of overkill. Uh, there's a you know there's an awful lot to it that you're never going to use um, if you're just trying to make a, a little solitaire game. Sure. This is where you know Python and some of the the libraries that are in Python come into play and really help people understand not only how how to write games, but also how to code around games and how to solve some of the problems before they get into, okay, now I want to create this big immersive world and I really need a big engine. Great, then you can move to those engines. Um, and you've got the coding background from Python that will make you a lot more successful in, in that realm. So I was thinking about that. Maybe we should dive a little bit into the different libraries mm-hmm. and talk about some of the advantages or disadvantages. And mm-hmm. probably the big one, that I hear about, and I think PyWeek is involved with somewhat as Pygame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Pygame has been around for for a long time. Originally started off as a a wrapper over SDL. Okay, you know it's it's been around for a while. What's SDL? What does that stand for? What is SDL? Simple Direct Media Layer. Um, okay, Pygame is started off as a wrapper over SDL, which gives you a way to control media and control graphics and give you an abstraction above the hardware layer of your individual sound card, uh, video card, et cetera, that you can address from Python. Built it up into uh, into a larger engine that you can use to actually write games. And when I first started teaching Python and started teaching gaming in Python, that's what we use, Pygame. Okay. It, it's been around for, for a while. People know it. It's got tons of people who, who uh, enjoy it and use it. There are a couple of downsides to it in that it is old. Uh, well, old's not the right word. It's been around for a long time. And so some of the more modern object-oriented uh, features uh, of a game engine that, that maybe people would want to use aren't there or need to be built in. What's kind of missing? Well, there's things like you need to manage your own game clock, which is a little odd. You don't have to do that if you're using Unity or Unreal um, or or Godot. Uh, they manage that for you. They they handle all that stuff for you. So a game clock, what is that? So the game clock dictates how fast your game graphics will update on the screen. The faster you can update the graphics on the screen, the the smoother your game will look. Okay. But you have a much shorter time in between each update to actually figure out what the update should be. If I need to move something, if I need to move something on the screen in response to, say, player input, uh, I need to figure out, okay, how much does it need to move and how much time do I have to actually get it to move to get it there? Because I need to you know, make changes to the objects that I'm manipulating. So how, how quickly, how much time do I have to do that? If you take more time to do it, then you've got fewer updates that happen every second. Your game looks choppier. Okay. And if you try to make it, try to accomplish a whole bunch of things within this loop, if you will, this uh, cycle, right? and it's unable to accomplish them, would that create a different type of choppiness? 
Yeah, it can, it, it, depending upon what's going on inside the game loop. For example, let's say you've got a, a game loop and you're trying to maintain uh, 30 frames a second, which is a little faster than, say, what a movie would be. A movie, I think, is at 24 frames a second. Sure, okay. So so you want your game uh, you know, to go at 30 frames a second, which is pretty much the bare minimum. That gives you basically one thirtieth of a second to do all of your processing, to do all the things that you need to do. Yeah. And if it takes longer than that one thirtieth of a second, then when the one thirtieth of a second is over and it's time to show the next frame, you're still doing calculations. The next frame can't be shown. So we have to wait. Yeah. And so that's what causes choppiness. That's what causes the the, the kind of herky jerky movements. And so, you know, most games actually want to run at much higher frame rates. Uh, you know, one, uh, you know, 60 frames a second is actually uh, pretty standard. Yeah, that's what a lot of things are bragging about over the last, like, 10 years is, oh, this can run at 60 frames per second. Right. I've heard it e- even needs to be faster for VR. It makes people ill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So depending upon what you want to do, you want to be able to do things and calculate things very quickly. So you want to make sure that what you're doing in in your game loop to do your updates is as quick as it possibly can be. And in Python, you have to you have to manage your own game loop. You have to set up your own game loop to basically say, okay, here's here's the end of my game loop, and I want it to be 30 frames a second. In something like Arcade, you don't need to do that. Oh, you're, you're saying you said Python, but you mean Pi Game, right? Uh, a Pi Game. I'm sorry. Yes, a Pi Game. You need to you need to basically say, okay, I'm at the end of my game loop, and we're done. Okay. In Arcade, you don't need to do that. Arcade has a default 60 frames a second game loop running. Oh wow, that's nice. And what happens is it maintains the game loop for you, and it says every time through the loop, I'm going to call the following functions. I'm going to call an on update function and get your updates, and then I'm going to call an on draw function at the end of it. Okay. And I will call an on key press uh, to get keyboard input, and and so it defines a lot of this stuff for you. So all you need to do is say, okay, in my on update, what do I need to do? I need to move things around, and if you find that the game is choppy. Um, you can see that now you can say, okay, I need to speed this loop up somehow. I need to speed up what I'm doing. This is again, where you start getting into more computer science type of thinking. Okay. Instead of doing calculations, is there a way that I could do this faster? And so you start to think of lookup tables instead of doing calculations. You know, you start to think about changing your data structures in such a way that they're, they're faster to, to access and to update and such. So using something like a set versus uh, a list or something, right, or, right, or dictionaries or things like that that are hashed, right. And if, you know, if if you're trying to simulate physics, okay, do I need to do actual calculations using, you know, Newton's constants for physics, or can I just simulate that a lot a lot quicker? Will it look okay? And in a lot of cases, you find that it looks fine with just the the approximations. You know, you don't need to do actual physics unless that's exactly what it is that you're doing. And now you need to maybe slow the game down a little bit so that you've got that extra time. So these are kind of the trade-offs that you make as you're, as you're designing your game, as you're building your game. I was playing around in iOS. They had created a, mm-hmm. a sprite library and it had a lot of the general physics stuff built in, which helped a lot. Like, you know, here, here is gravity. Mm-hmm. You could basically start using their APIs and, and tools to kind of get things started. Is some of that stuff built into Arcade or Pygame? It is. Uh, Arcade, uh, so Pygame does not have a built-in physics um, engine of, of any kind. 
Uh, if you need to do physics, you need to manage it yourself. And there are some great libraries out there to do it. Wow. Okay. PyMonk is is a great physics uh, library that you can use. And you can you can actually, if you wanted to do more advanced physics, you can incorporate PyMonk um, into your arcade game as well. Okay. But but for basic kind of uh, physics things, Arcade has some built-in physics engines. It's got one that will provide you with basic collisions. It'll provide you with how to handle a sprite so that a sprite won't go through the ground. Um, you know, it recognizes, okay, here's the ground. Yeah, and I'm through the ground. I can't walk through a wall. It's got a, a platformer engine as well. So, and it'll handle automatically if you if you set them up properly. It'll handle moving platforms. So it'll just automatically animate your moving platforms. Uh, you can have your sprites sitting on those moving platforms, and it'll move them for you. Okay, like they're attached somehow or something. Yeah, exactly. You jump on. You know, if you jump onto a moving platform, um, and then you stop moving, and the platform moves, you will move with that moving platform. Okay. It's really cool. It also has support for animating your sprite. So uh, if you think of, you know, Mario or the Load Runner, whenever they were running, um, they look like they were running. They actually moved. And that's a and right. that's a feature called animated sprites. Arcade has built in support for animated sprites. OK, with with Pygame, you really have to you really have to handle your own sprite motion and your own sprite activity. Um, it's got sprite handling, but it's not of the same caliber as as Arcade does. So yeah, it's pretty big differences. What's more modern, right? When did Arcade come along? Arcade is I'd have to look back. It's it's only a couple years old. It, it's not that old. Um, the the guy who maintains it, his name is Paul Craven. He's a a professor at a university in Iowa. Okay. I've I've been back and forth with him in email. When I wrote the first arcade article, I actually sent a copy of it to him first to make sure that I wasn't Oh wow, cool. didn't have any glaring errors in it. He enjoyed it. Uh he liked it. He liked the fact that the article was out there. In the course of writing the next article, I actually found a couple of issues in the uh in the library and I've uh, issued a couple pull requests which he's pulled in. We've talked back and forth. He's very active on the Reddit group for uh Python Arcade, which is r slash Python Arcade. So he is very responsive. He's kept updates coming to uh, Arcade for the past, at least the past year since I've been playing around with it. So uh, so pretty active. Yes, very active. Yeah, I noticed that he has a sort of read the docs kind of page, which is arcade.academy. And looks like it has lots of uh, nice resources ready to go on it too. Yeah, he's got all sorts of tutorial games that are up there. Um, he actually just recently added one, a Space Invaders clone. Oh, good. Which is which is great because it it solved the problem. I I wanted to write a Space Invaders clone, but there I I couldn't figure out in my head how to do the the blockades at the bottom. And he's come up with a very elegant solution to to doing the blockades at the bottom. I learned something from from his most recent tutorial as well. So yeah, I I really enjoy arcade, uh, but. Just like every other game engine, it's got its downfalls as well. Uh, obviously, it's still under active, very active development. There's a lot of things that he adds. Uh, sometimes he adds breaking changes. So, you know, you have to go back and take a look and, you know, specifically aim your your game at a particular version. He readily admits that the sound and music handling is subpar. Um, he doesn't doesn't like it. And compared to Pygame, uh, he's right. Uh, Pygame has much better music handling than than Arcade does. Okay. I was wondering about that. Like, are there certain things that you need to do to get your audio ready for being a sound effect or being uh, as background music? For for both of them, not really. They they both handle the major formats, MP3, Wave, Ogvorbis. 
Og is probably the the more popular of them. Um, I was fascinated that Og is like a really popular format f- for games. Why is that? You know, I I don't know off the top of my head. I know MP3s. You know they're smaller, but they're compressed. Right. Um, you know, wave files are going to have a lot of fidelity, but they're huge. Right. You're going to expand your game a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I've translated uh, my stuff into OG files. You know, the the size differences don't seem to don't seem to matter much. I think a lot of it may have to do with proprietary versus non proprietary codecs as well. Uh, okay. So, like licensing is OG more open? Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to P3. Do you have a good tool that you use to make those files? Because I really had to hunt around doing my uh, video course to try to create, like I created some custom music and some sound effects myself and wanted to get it ready to go. And I was having problems with the MP3 playback and Pygame. And it seems like Aug worked really the smoothest out of everything that I tried and it kept it fairly small so I could share the resources. Mm-hmm. And I ended up finding, I'm trying to remember the name of the weird tool I found, but um, do you have a suggestion? Um, so I, I kind of fall back to uh, Audacity. Okay. Um, I actually did some, uh, the, the sound effects that are in the Pygame article that I did, I actually just did an Audacity. I recorded my voice, I uh, added some filters, okay. and that was it. I did a, I did kind of a victory sound for this, uh, for game to support the, uh, my next article. Okay. I used a tool called Muse score to, to just write a little piece of music and, you know, da, 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 and right. Okay. You just, you know, recorded it. And then I, you know, I can use audacity to just, you know, kind of edit the, edit the sound and, you know, add echoes if I want to, or compress it a little bit, change format. So audacity's worked very well for me. It has some nice kind of effects ready to go in it, which is nice. Yeah. There's two kind of areas I was wondering about. One is you mentioned it briefly when thinking about Pi Week and getting resources for your game. You know, maybe you're not an artist, maybe you're not a musician or a person who works on sound effects, and you would you really just want to focus on the programming part, but you'd like to not just have like flying around text characters or something like that. You want something a little more interesting. So what are some good resources? Right. Probably the best resource that I found for a lot of this stuff is a website called opengameart.org. Okay. There are, you can sign up for a free account up there. There are tons of resources for you to use. You'll have uh, both for 2D and 3D games. So you can get uh, two-dimensional sprites and sprite sheets. You can get packs of sprites that you can use just to build platformers of every different kind. You know, if you want... You know, just dirt and grass because it's going to be a nice little kind of Mario thing. You can do that. (laughs) If you're going to make it on some lava planet, you can get lava and weird rock stuff. You know, if it's going to be in space, you know, they've got backgrounds. They've got sprites of of all different colors. Where's that term sprite come from? What is that? Um, I don't know that it stands for anything. I remember using it way back in the 80s. It's basically just a small picture that you manipulate as one unit on the screen. Okay. You can break a 2D game down into... And do a bunch of different sprites. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Think, yeah. And then they're layered on top of each other. Yeah. Think of, think of uh, you know, uh, Super Mario Brothers. You know, Mario is a sprite. Okay. He's an animated sprite. So there are a lot of little pictures that make up Mario. Same thing with the Goombas. You know, as they're kind of walking back and forth, they're just sprites. And then if they're walking to the left, they're pointing in one direction. They're walking to the right. We just mirror them and make them walk in the other direction. Okay. Those are all just little pictures that are used and they, they appear wherever you want them to appear. They've got boundaries around them okay. that dictate 
okay, what happens, you know, where do I collide with this thing? You know, where's the actual edge of it? And then, yeah, the, the game engines, uh, all of them, whether it's Pygame or Arcade or, you know, Unity or Godot or Unreal, they all know how to, they just layer the sprites one on top of one another. So you'll have a big background, you'll have all your sprites for your, your walls and your ground and your ladders and your background images. And then you've got your sprites for your characters and sprites for your enemies. And they all know how to, how to interact with one another in one way or another, whether that's in code or something that you define in the, in the world itself. So you're saying open game art is a good resource. Do they have the sound also? Yes. They, yeah, they've got sounds. Uh, I've downloaded a bunch of sounds from them. Again, it depends on the type of game. If you, if you're doing a, a medieval sword and sorcery game and you want, you know, swords clashing, you want bunch of you know kind of the kind of sounds of a, yeah. of a sword being pulled <laughs> right you know obviously i'm not a sound effect <laughs> well i've seen some games that are like that where the person literally created all the sounds with their just their voice and and filters like you were saying for your game oh yeah yeah and and, and there are people who do just that i mean they you know there are people who who will actually make money off of this so you know open game art you can you can get things check the license on anything that you download though make sure that that, that the license is going to work for you. Some some folks, it'll be a Creative Commons license. Some folks use MIT or BSD or a, you know, a GPL license. And make sure that the license fits with your game um, and that you can redistribute as well. Okay, so a license would be something that as you look at one of these, I don't know, for a better word, assets, these uh, sprites or pieces of music or whatever, yep. there'd be a license that is tagged there with it. What does a license say? So, so the license will be there. Um, it, they'll, there'll probably be a little tag. An asset is, the, you know, it's the right word for all of this stuff. Anything that you put into your game is an asset. The license will be tagged there. There'll be a little tag that shows what the license is. And then you can click on that and it'll go and, and take you to a page that will explain exactly what the license terms are. Because a lot of them are, they're very generic. A lot of people just use the same license all the time, whether it's a, you know, Creative Commons license or GPL V2 or V3. Uh, the BSD license, and you can go through the the terms there and it'll tell you what you can and can't do with those particular assets. Can I take these assets and put them into a game that I will then sell to people? And the license will say, yes or no, you can't do that. Okay. So you could do it for your own development and share it with your friends potentially, but not nothing commercial, depending on that the level of the license that you're looking at. Exactly. Especially with fonts. Uh, you know, I, I did this with a, with a font. Um, I downloaded a font that I wanted uh, that wasn't available on my machine. I thought it was a great font. I looked at it. I thought it, it would work just fine. Uh, I started looking at the license only to find out that, no, the version, the free version of the font that I have is only for personal use. I can't do anything. I can't redistribute it. Um, I can't, you know, do anything else with it. So I had to change fonts. I had to go with something different. So. Is this for your game or for like an application you're putting out? This is actually for the game that is supporting my next article. Oh, okay. I downloaded the font. I thought it worked great. And then, oh, no, I can't use it. Okay. Just in the code that I'm going to distribute, I do not have that font. I don't have it referenced anywhere. I think it looks great, but uh, we're just going to have to drop back and use, you know, Times New Roman. Something that's more open. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there are plenty, you know, you can go out and buy and, and get free fonts too. I think there's a, a site called open fonts and you can get fonts that, that have the same kind of licensing around them. They're free to use. Um, you know, you can redistribute them. You can put them into things that you sell or things that you give away, you know, just make sure that you, that you read the licenses and that you comply with them because that's a really good way to get a cease and desist letter from somebody's lawyer. 
<laughs> if, if it becomes, especially if you're created something that's really nice and it becomes popular. Yeah. What are the ways that, that you give that credit? Is it something you, you put in the code or do you need to have like a credit screen? Yeah. Would, would the license dictate that stuff? Yeah, it would. And for folks who read both the Pie Game and the Arcade article, you'll notice that I've credited where I've gotten different things, where I've gotten sound effects, where I've gotten different sprites. Okay. That's because that the license say, you know, either attribution is necessary or uh, a lot of folks say it's free to use. Attribution would be nice, but not necessary. And, you know, attribution is, is easy. I can put up a credit screen and say, you know, the sprites came from here. Okay. I can definitely put it in the article. I definitely put it in the code that I share. You know, make sure that those attributions are there. Again, the license will tell you how you need to attribute it. Sometimes it's just in the code, but, you know, uh, it, it doesn't hurt to put it in the documentation as well. Certainly doesn't hurt to put it on a credit screen if you got one. So the next thing I was thinking about is if you created this game and now you want to go to the step of sharing it with someone and not having to drag somebody over to your computer to play it, mm-hmm. you know, somebody within your own house, I can understand sharing it with other people that work in Python and they could download the code from GitHub or what have you. Have you gone through techniques of trying to compile the stuff and share it more wide than that? None of my games have been of the caliber that I want to share them in that way. Um, I, I put them up on GitHub. Sure. The next game, yeah, I, I really would like to put this out because uh, I, I think it'd be a, a, a cool game. This one that I've had in my head for a while. There are ways to to package up a Python game. I think there, there's actually a real Python article on packaging your Python app for use with, with other folks. Okay. And I've actually recommended that to somebody else. A real quick search on packaging your Python stuff uh, will show real Python how to package it up. And so that'll put the whole thing together into one executable that'll run on hopefully whatever system you have. Run Python, run the game. Um, You just need to make sure that you've got everything packaged up properly. One good way to do this is if you're a solo developer and and you're doing this stuff, find, reach out, find somebody else who's willing to try it. Find somebody else who's willing just to download your GitHub repo and just try it themselves. Okay. See if they can do it. Because, like, say, if if I were to reach out to you and say, can you try this game out really quick? Right. And you download the repo, and I say, here's how you run it. And you run it, and it just doesn't run. Now I know there's a problem. Now it's it's something that is specific to my machine that is not on your machine, and I need to fix that. Okay. So that really helps you get past a lot of these issues. Another way to do that, if you don't have anybody else to try... Uh, fire up another account on your machine. Just add another another user account to your machine. Make sure that they don't have anything on that machine, uh, on that particular account, and just try and download it and run it from there. That way you kind of isolate any of the special sauce that you've got on your machine that you were using for development and debugging and everything else. Uh, and just make sure that it runs for, you know, just a regular user on a, on a, on a normal machine. One thing that I was looking at was a, a library called Beware. B-E-E-W-A-R-E, which is a way to get Python code running natively on an Android device. Okay. Which looked really interesting when I first started digging into it. I guess it was about this time last year I started looking at it. Um, It seemed like they still had a little ways to go. And then I just read an article a day or two ago that, that said that they had just gotten a Python, you know, just straight up Python running on Android using all the native stuff on Android. Nice. It looked really good. And it's it's definitely something that I want to do because the mobile market is obviously huge, especially mobile gaming. If you've got a good idea for, you know, just a little time waster kind of game and you can get it out on 
the Apple Store or Google Play, you can really kind of make a splash there. Something I'm developing as a weekly topic here is what you're excited about right now in the space of Python. It doesn't necessarily have to be about games. It could be an event, a package, or something else that you're kind of excited about in the Python world right now. There, there's one thing that I've actually been reading about, and it, and it is kind of game-related. It's a, a new library called Ursina, U-R-S-I-N-A, Ursina, like Ursine, like a bear. Sure, okay. It is a 3D library that is fully Python. It's built on top of Panda 3D, which I think is where, where they get the Ursina from. <laughs> Panda, Ursine. Yeah, okay. It's a 3D gaming library. You can look it up, uh, Ursina, uh, and get to their website. They've got a couple of really cool demos. Like they've got a, a, a Minecraft demo, you know, where you can just, you know, kind of build the world and, and click on things. And it's, Nice. It's it's just insane. It's like less than a 1K of source code and the Ursina engine. And you've got a world in which you can move around, you can rotate, you can do all sorts of stuff. You can start building up. They've got one that's just over, it, it's not that much more code, but it's, uh, it's the same kind of uh, idea, but it's hexagonal instead of square based. And you can pull things up and push things down and move them around. And it's really impressive what you can do with this engine in the 3D world. Now, I, I haven't dove, uh, delved into to 3D gaming at all, but just the fact that you can do this stuff in Python with an engine and a couple of lines of code is just fascinating to me. I, I'm always amazed at the new things that are coming out and this for, for, for graphics, for gaming, for data visualization, for just about anything. This is, this is a very cool new library that I've, I've just learned about and I'm just starting to play around with. Awesome. That sounds great. Well, one thing I'm excited about is now that we're setting up this podcast, Dan and I are working on audience questions, collect recordings of these questions that people are asking, and then working toward creating a question and answer, maybe monthly, like a panel kind of thing, or maybe depending on the guests, be able to answer a few questions one off. But that's our one of our next big steps. And I'm excited about getting the audience more involved in it. And as we keep continuing this podcast, uh, I guess that would be my next new thing. Uh, coming from the real Python space. Those are cool. I, I always like going to those during conventions and conferences and stuff where, you know, you get four or five people sitting up on a stage and just talking amongst themselves. And then people come up to mics and start asking questions back and forth. I always love being part of that. And if, if not asking questions, at least listening to all the questions and the answers and the banter back and forth. That's lots of fun. As we get close to the end of the podcast here, is there anything that we missed? The, the one thing I'll reiterate is, you know, if, if you're going, if you're going to write games, if you're going to do this stuff and you want to learn this stuff, just make sure that you're not judging what it is that you've done based upon what somebody else has, has done who's been doing this for 10 or 20 years. If you're just starting out, be prepared to to get things wrong. Be prepared to have things break. Be prepared to say, oh, you know, th this isn't quite up to up to par. That's fine. Go on, get to the next thing, try something new and just make sure that you're learning stuff. That's th That's the key. Nothing's ever finished. There's a thing in the art world that says art art is never finished. It's just abandoned. <laughs> right. Be ready to abandon something to go on to the next thing. I was thinking of one other question for you. In that vein, like, can you think of like what has been one of your biggest challenges that you faced in trying to make games? I, I think one of my biggest challenges is looking at the games that I played when I was a kid, like ar arcade games. I, I've got this thing about recreating arcade games. Sure. Galaga is one of my favorite games. I love playing Galaga. Yeah. And 
seeing what what folks did in in hardware and in very limited memory with very limited resources and being able to to put these things out and have them be successful and and money making things and then looking at, at what they did and then trying to recreate it the big challenge for me is that i run into the limits of my own my own knowledge i run into limits of my own thinking you know i'll, I'll go back to galaga if if you're familiar with the Galaga game, there's a bit where all of the enemies, they fly in on the screen from the left and from the right, and they fly in and they follow little patterns before they assemble themselves up at the top of the screen. Yeah. How do they fly in on those patterns? What is that pattern that they fly in on? They come and they do a little loop-de-loop, and then they get set up top. And then the boss stages is when they're, they fly down in set specific patterns. Well, how are those patterns defined? How do you know... That, you know, they're supposed to fly into this loop-to-loop, and then where do they go? Trying to figure that problem out, trying to solve that problem is, I, I keep running into my own, I, I, I keep thinking I'm overcomplicating the solution. I keep thinking I don't have the solution. I have no idea where the solution is. I, I, it, it stymies me all the time as to how, how, do I, how do I do that in a way that is computationally efficient, and I can get it done inside of, uh, inside of my frame count. Yeah in such a way that I can actually define levels, you know, so I can put this stuff in data and say, okay, here's the pattern that it flies. And how do I define that? Trying to, trying to figure that out and then sit there and say, yeah, but I've got, you know, eight gigs of Ram and, you know, Python, this guy had a bunch of transistors and he did it in machine language. <laughs> Definitely kilobytes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he had, you know, he had, he had K in, in machine language. How the heck did he do it? This gets back to measuring my chapter one against his chapter twenty. He knew a lot more about that than I did. Sure. So I'm I'm always always trying to learn, and and so the biggest challenge is as you're figuring this stuff out, try not to get discouraged by the fact that you know these guys did it already, and they did it better than I'm going to do it. Maybe it goes back to uh, constraints a little bit. You know, the fact that you can you have all this crazy memory and you're running it on a desktop, you know, computer that's yeah thirty years removed from. Or even further, almost, almost forty years removed from yeah. when all these original arcade games came out. Yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of cool thing I think about the we were talking about with Pi Week. This idea that hey, you know, you're not going to be able to complete Elder Scrolls Skyrim or something like that in a week. <laughs> you know, that game took mm-hmm. five years or longer, and a team of hundreds of people. Yeah, keep your goals within reach that you can kind of then build on top of them. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining me, John. I, I really this has been a great talk. I, I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you for the opportunity, and uh, uh, really looking forward to hearing who else you get on the on the podcast. I, I enjoyed the first one. I'm looking, trying to figure out why I'm why I'm here, and I'm really looking forward to who else <laughs> who else you got. All right. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll keep you guessing. Okay. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> All right. Bye. I want to thank John Fincher for talking to me, and I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.